Hi, podcast listener. Welcome to Truth About Exits, a show dedicated to pulling back the curtain to reveal what it really takes to get deals closed. You'll hear directly from founders of companies who have raised capital, sold their companies, and even those who acquire other companies for growth. I'm your host, Corin Woodmass. I'm a dealmaker, advisor, and when I'm not closing deals, I love to talk to others about their deals and what it took to get them closed. And now you can listen into these conversations too. For all the show notes and more resources, go to truthaboutexits.com. And we're live. Today on Truth About Exits, I'm joined by Brian Davis. Brian's a partner at Altercrest Capital. He and his partners have completed over $3 billion worth of investments during their 20-plus year careers. Today, we'll be talking about their acquisition of Barton Watch Bands, an Austin-based e-commerce company. Brian, thanks for joining this, joining us here on Truth About Exits. Thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure to be here. Awesome. So we met while we were marketing an e-commerce deal recently, and we had the the good um, opportunity to catch up while you were in Austin for lunch. So um, I got to know you a little bit then, and I'd like to introduce you to the listeners. So before Altercrest, what were you what were you doing before launching Altercrest? And we'll jump into what that is in a minute. Sure. No thanks. Um, so Altercrest Capital is a little over a year old. Um, as we like to say, uh, Altercrest is fairly young, but unfortunately, we're not. <laughs> I, uh, so I've got uh, two partners. There's three of us in total. Um, two of us worked at Prudential Capital Group uh, for about 15 years together, Tim Lachkowski and I. Um, and prior to, to working at Prudential Capital, I spent about five years in investment banking, um, doing mergers and acquisitions, as well as uh, capital raises and, and things of that nature. But the uh, majority of my career, as I mentioned, is at Prudential Capital Group. And Prudential Capital Group basically invests the money of Prudential into middle market companies. You know, everybody's got a different definition of what middle market is. Um, at Prudential, it was getting uh, a little bit larger in terms of deal size um, relative to when I started in 2004 versus when I, I left uh, in 2018. So we typically looked at transactions at Prudential Capital that would have uh, EBITDA really anywhere from about you know $7 million uh, up to a couple hundred million dollars. Um, and so... You know, one of the things that led Tim and I to want to start uh, Altacrest was, you know, as we looked at companies that were smaller, you know, they would come across through our deal networks and, and different, uh, you know, intermediaries we knew, different friends, different companies that we had called on. We saw a lot of really attractive companies that were, you know, a couple million dollars of EBITDA up to $10 million. Um and as the the market, you know, started to to go away from companies that size, and and large financial services firms such as Prudential Capital were putting bigger and bigger sums of money to work uh, in larger companies, uh, we felt like there was a need there. And so, um, you know, we used to invest uh, capital in a wide variety of industries, anything from consumer products to business services to. Uh, you know, manufacturing and things of that nature. But both uh, Tim and I really wanted to have a tighter industry focus. 
we both liked consumer products quite a bit. And uh, a good friend of ours, Rick Sukar, is our third partner, uh, spent you know, the vast majority of his career in consumer products. He spent about 15 years with J.P. Morgan, uh, primarily in their M&A group, helping to sell, you know, large consumer product companies. Uh, he got tired of the larger financial institution uh, arena and in 2008 went out and started to operate companies. And um, the last of which was a, uh, a consumer product company. It was private equity owned. Uh, that they really started from startup uh, and and grew from there to you know about fifteen twenty million dollars of of revenue, and um, they really used e-commerce as uh, an important platform to not only grow sales on e-commerce but also in terms of getting into other sales channels as well. And so, you know, as the three of us were talking and had similar interests and similar uh, areas of our career, we wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. Uh, Altacrest seemed like a great idea, and um, we've been you know, fine-tuning the strategy ever since, but are really spending the majority of our time now focused uh, pretty tightly in on consumer product companies uh, that are either selling primarily through e-commerce uh, or existing, you know, what I would call you know, more old-school consumer product companies that have perhaps a poor online strategy and something where we can, uh, you know, take that and uh, introduce direct to consumer, et cetera, et cetera to, to help them grow and, uh, you know, really give, you know, the consumer what, you know, the products where they want them and how they want to buy them is sort of our, our focus. Absolutely. And I've seen a trend. I've just recently uh, moved to the US myself and I, I've noticed a trend here. I, I'd noticed that from afar before, but it's more evident here um, once you're in living in the States or spending more time in the States is people actually, it, it seems to be a huge trend of the average person to care about where they get their products from. And they want a brand story and they want to talk about the, the products they buy to all of their friends, <laughs> which is great if you've got a good product to sell, uh, but not so great if you're a, a legacy type large brand. So uh, are you seeing a similar trend in, in consumer behavior? Uh, I think absolutely. I think that you know most people, although we like to think we act logically, most people make actions based on emotion. And I think you know the buying decision, that's clearly there too. And people want to relate to the product they're buying and they want to hope that it has the same, you know, primary value set that they have, um, whether it's, you know, all natural type products that are, you know, eco-friendly, which is, you know, one of our areas of focus um, and actually where we just closed our recent transaction, um, or whether it's uh, a brand that they can identify that's, you know, socially conscious, um, you know, Barton that you mentioned earlier, you know, we, we have a, a couple of different uh, situations where we'll have a particular band, watch band that we sell and uh, a portion of the uh, sales go to um, an identified nonprofit uh, organization. And, and we think that's important, you know, and it's not only important for the brand, um, but it, we think it's good for, you know, society at large. And so, you know, we're, we're happy to, to jump on that trend as well. Absolutely. It's nice when trends in the entrepreneurial capitalist um, industry or focus 
turn towards helping helping other people as well. <laughs> so it's good good for marketing, but also good for everyone. So it's a win win, a true win win, which is which is nice. Yeah, so absolutely. I like the um I I like the fact that you guys have a a tight focus on consumer products and specifically in e commerce because obviously that's what we mostly deal in as well. So um how do you how do you look at these businesses um let's say Barton. So when you when you first looked at the business have and by the way, you guys move quick, right? <laughs> you right. only just launched a year ago and you've already done three transactions. You guys don't muck around. I like your style. <laughs> so, stay um, busy. Absolutely. So you mentioned that you were introduced to Barton through through your network. So you obviously have a, a decent network from all those years at Prudential. But how many deals do you typically look at before making an acquisition and what was it about this business that made it an acquisition target for you? Yeah, I, uh, we do track how many deals we look at. I don't have the, the numbers in front of me, but it's you know, in a given year, we'll, we'll look at you know hundreds of transactions um, and then we probably get pretty serious on, I would say, a couple a month. And so call that mid-20s uh, that we get serious on, meaning we're going to put together some form of indication of interest, uh, expressing what you know we'd be willing to, to pay for a company and how we would operate it, et cetera. And then from that funnel, you know, you get down to, you know, maybe uh, three or four letters of intent that get signed and, and, you know, hopefully you close all of those, but it, it generally leads to, to closing, you know, 75 or 80% of those, just depending on what happens in diligence and, and things of that nature. So it's, uh, it's definitely part of the funnel um, approach, but we, the way that we approach it from a marketing standpoint is um, we like relationships and we like finding situations where uh, usually there's one or two degrees of separation between us and a founder, you know, and it's a, it's a nice way to, you know, provide both uh, people the ability to back check the other, because when you go into these types of transactions, um, you know, occasionally you're buying hundred percent of the company and the founder goes away, but oftentimes, especially in deals that we like to do, the founder, you know, is going to retain uh, a degree of ownership in the business going forward. And so it's important for us to have, you know, a good relationship and a good partnership. And, you know, in many ways, it's it's like a marriage. So um, oftentimes, you know, sorry, go ahead. Did you want to interject? Oh, yeah, sorry, Brad. I'd love to dig into that just a little bit more, where the, the approach that you prefer is to have the the founder or the owner of the company retain equity. Can you explain how that, why that's preferable to you, please? Yeah, there's a number of reasons. One is just alignment of interest. You know, when you're buying somebody's company, and you know, it, it could be you know their baby to to, to use the colloquial phrase, but. Um, you know, you don't know everything. You can do as much diligence as you can, but it's hard to know everything. And there's going to be some transition period. And if you've got good economic alignment to where that individual still owns a portion of the company, usually he or she is much more uh, apt to be helpful. And so we think that that's, that's really a good thing too. Um, the other side of it, uh, it's true in Barton. It's also true in our, our recent transaction uh, for Corganics, um, where in both those situations, the owner, you know, owns 
uh, a minor, you know, minority percentage of the company, but but meaningful minority. Um, they're both, you know, visionary type product people. You know, they they are passionate about either in the case of Barton watch bands or in the case of Corganics, passionate about, you know, uh, natural uh, based uh, personal care products, uh, be it a, a, a pain relief cream um, or there's some other ones that we're going to be you know issuing soon. But they're very good at products with the, they tend to not be as good at um, admittedly is really the sales and marketing function and then some of the uh, finance uh, administration function. And so you know it's a it can be a very good marriage. you know we're not product people, but we are good at sales and marketing and we are good at finance, at least we believe. Um, and so if if that person retains ownership and can still be involved in uh, you know overseeing a degree of the the product development roadmap, you know that uh, that can be a good fit for us. Okay, excellent. That that makes a lot of sense. And we do come across a lot of founders that are more artisanal types where they're just super excited about their product and maybe you're, like you said, not so great on the sales and marketing side, but um, it's tough to be great at everything. Absolutely. <laughs> so that creates a pretty pretty good opportunity. So let, let's talk about Barton specifically. Um, we talked before at lunch and also before we hit record here about the timeline on this one. So I'd like to dig into that a little bit. So could you walk us through, you got the initial introduction, you did the kind of background checking to see if this, if it was a good fit. Um, you also mentioned something when you said that in your LOIs, you, you mentioned how you all operate the business and what your your thoughts are around that, which I thought was really interesting. We often see competitive environments in e-commerce businesses because there is no usually no fixed location or very easy to move locations so you you appeal to a wider buyer pool for the most part so do you find that that's a competitive advantage to put in your LOI exactly what you're thinking about as far as operationally managing the business and growing the business moving forward we do i mean i think it's a competitive advantage and i think it's also just part of our attempt to be transparent up front and so that we can get everybody on board with with how it's going to work like in in the barton situation the the founder uh who did an amazing job you know growing the business to to where it was uh you know he did not want to do the day-to-day operations anymore and so in the letter of intent it was important for us to outline that you know here's you know the strategy of you know the type of individual we're going to get to uh, replace you as as CEO. Uh, you know we think that the company's although it's done great in all these areas. You know here's where we think a few things can be augmented. These are the, some of the skill sets you know that we're going to look to bring to bear to to do that. And I think it helps, especially in a situation where you're you're asking a, an owner to retain some ownership in the company uh, post deal. You know, if if he or she gets more excited about you know the growth prospects and the and the plan that we're putting in place uh, to achieve that, uh, a our you know our proposal is usually deemed more attractive, and I think b it you know just demonstrates you know perhaps a deeper level of of thought uh, than than your, your some other groups that may just throw a number out there just to see if it sticks. 
I like it, Brian. And in the original conversations, you mentioned the intro was in August of 2018, which is last year at the time of recording. Did you find that information out there or is that fairly boilerplate almost that you you put into the LOI what you're planning to do or do you tailor that to the the founder and what their needs are? Uh, we have a, a pretty standard... Yeah, you know, it starts typically with an indication of interest. And even in the indication of interest, we may start to outline, you know, a good number of those items in terms of how the operational plan will be in addition to the economics of the transaction and the structure. Uh, the letter of intent then takes it to the next level. You know, typically the, you know, the indication of interest is, you know, negotiated back and forth maybe once or twice just to make sure that we're, we're all in the same ballpark. Um, with regard to, to how it would work and economically and operationally. And then the letter of intent is really getting down to, okay, this is what we're going to do. And unless, you know, something pops up and, you know, due diligence that we were unaware of, you know, this is what we're going to close on. Um, and that's important to us to, to, to do what we say we're going to do uh, on those aspects. Um, but it's, uh, you know, each, each situation is a little bit different. You know, we, we have a standard, uh, LOI that we do, but then there are sections within the LOI that are, you know, have to be customized for each deal. And that's typically the actual structure of the deal, meaning the, the, the capitalization, debt versus equity. Uh, also, the operational plan can be a little bit different because in not every situation are we replacing a CEO. Sometimes, you know, the CEO may want to stay on and, and we may view that individual as being, being a great uh, person and somebody that we want to get get behind. And so uh, those are the parts that that get a little bit more customized. I like it. And um, I'm kind of bouncing a little bit back and forward here between the Barton example and just in general, but there's some really interesting pieces of what you just said. So um, if, if, for instance, a founder is the CEO and they're, what they're really looking for is a capital partner, as opposed to a, a buyout and operational takeover, how do you view that type of that type of deal, and how would you how would you normally structure a deal where the the founder is the CEO and they are staying on? Um, I think that's you know it's great. I mean, if if the founder is the same person uh, that's going to stay on because it takes one risk away. You know, anytime you have a new person coming in to run the show. You know, that opens up transition risk. And that's not something that we take lightly because we've seen enough situations where a new CEO can be very disruptive. Um, you know, despite your best attempts at interviewing and background checking, et cetera. Um, so, you know, with regard to, to structure and the way we look at it, is, you know, we talked about it earlier. You know, nobody can be great at everything. Um, and one of the biggest things that that we see that happens as companies scale is they go from, you know, it's it it's not uncommon, especially in today's world of Amazon, to in your first three or four years jump up to you know five to ten million dollars of revenue, and then you start to become you know a real company and you're creating real cash flow and you're now trying to figure out you know how do I scale to twenty, thirty, forty, fifty million dollars of revenue, and that's. It is a bit different, and it and part of it is just the blocking and tackling of putting in the process and the people to to make it all work. Um, 
and and some of the CEOs we deal with have that skill set. Uh, some of them, you know, are more just visionaries and you know need need that to be augmented. So anytime you're going to grow, it's always a people business, and you've got to think about what you're going to put in there in terms of of augmenting the existing capability. So you know, it doesn't have to be a new CEO; it could be a new you know, chief operating officer, um, or it could be a new head of product development that's just going to oversee, uh, you know, vendor management. That's sort of, you know, in the supply chain. Uh, It's really just doing an analysis around, you know, where are the weaknesses, where are the choke points going to be as we grow, uh, and then coming up with a plan for, you know, when you inevitably do hit those uh, to try to minimize the disruption that, that it causes. The most interesting me, uh, the most interesting thing to me about what you just said, Brian, is you didn't mention capital once. <laughs> um, oftentimes, when I'm talking to founders that are growing at a super fast rate, they think capital is their only problem. But what you just mentioned, and rightly so, is that it's a people business, and people really make the difference. So that's that's super interesting. So how do you look at the the capital side of things when it comes to a founder staying on obviously it depends what they need as well do you typically take a minority stake do you always want majority how does that typically work you know for us uh we always want a majority ownership position uh you know, in my former life i've i've done you know minority uh equity transactions and you can do them effectively but it's you typically, uh, I'd feel better in larger companies doing minority equity deals than I would in the, the size that that we're dealing at, uh, just because they're they're more fragile at our size. Companies are, uh, and so you know, if things are going awry, you know, we need the ability to uh, step in and, and try to you know uh, implement change if if needed. So we 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 tend to like control deals and, and focus on those. Yeah, you know, the, the the capital structure question is an interesting one, and that's that's where you've just got to you need to have a plan when you get to cl- before you get to closing of you know here's what we think is going to happen. You know, projections are always wrong, uh, but at least gives you an idea of a roadmap of of what you know could happen, and if it does, how much capital you know do we need to deploy that, and and then you take into account, okay, if I need a lot more capital to deploy the growth strategy, I, you know, need to put less debt on the business. Um, and we do typically put debt on our acquisitions, but it's, uh, you know, what we think is a, a very prudent level um, that's not going to choke any any growth. But I would say that, you know, that's one of the beauties of e-commerce and why we were so attracted to it when we launched is, you know, they're very capital efficient. Uh, and frankly, as part of our, you know, we've got a a criteria of, or you know, a checklist rather, of, call it ten or fifteen different uh, tri- a- attributes of these businesses that we really like. Now you never check all the boxes, but if you can check a lot of them, uh, that can be good. And one of the things for us is is really working capital efficiency. Uh, and so as you're growing, uh, you know how much working capital do you need to maintain and, and have grow with you? And does that choke off your cash flow? But um, it, it's just something you have to balance uh, carefully. Uh, and it's something we spend a lot of time on uh, to try to make sure we get right on the front end. I like it. That's that's really interesting. Could you share any of your other points on the checklist? 
Yeah, I mean, we we have certain you know financial characteristics that we like. Obviously, you know, higher gross margin uh, businesses uh, are obviously favored. You know, in today's world, you know, especially selling Amazon, you've got to pay your you know seller's commission, selling commission, as well as you know we typically do FBA. So I mean, that can be you know thirty points uh, off revenue right there. So you know, the higher your gross margin percentage is for your cost of goods sold. It gives you more ability to absorb the Amazon fees or affiliate marketing fees, et cetera, and still have uh, plenty of money for for advertising spend and and payroll increases that are going to need to occur. So we we like that. Uh, you know, we like the the working capital dynamics I mentioned are are important um, to us. Um, and then it gets into you know, more qualitative ideas, such as you know we really prefer brands uh, as opposed to just products, and that's a very esoteric distinction between the two. Uh, but the biggest thing I think that, that, you know, how you can define that is, is repeat customers. If you have a lot of repeat customers, you know, I think you're, you're starting to show that you're a brand, even if you're a very small company, you're getting some brand loyalty by people coming back. And so that's, you know, one of the major areas that, that we focus on in terms of uh, just some of the analytics that we look at. And I think Barton would have ticked those boxes for sure. I mean, you can't go to the website and not want to buy more than one thing. <laughs> if you're a, if you're a watch guy, you want you want four or five, or you'll come back. They look like very high quality high quality pieces. Um, so with this deal specifically, with the founder staying on in more of a, what does his role day to day look like now that you've acquired and taken over, put in a new CEO into the business? So, as I mentioned, he still owns a portion of the company. He has a seat on the board of directors, uh, and so you know he attends all the board meetings where we discuss strategy and growth plans. Uh, he's also, frankly, just a trusted advisor. Uh, he, a really bright individual, uh, he's a, a passionate. Uh, watch person. Uh, he's got great product uh, development ideas. And so we uh, we tend to run our product roadmap, our product development roadmap by him uh, to, to get his, you know, thoughts around it to, to you know, as, as, a, as a watch connoisseur, you know, what would be liked uh, in the marketplace. And so, and that's, you know, he is, he, he enjoys those parts of the, of the business. Um but that's uh, and and we're still we we closed on the transaction last November. New CEO came on early March, uh, so a lot of the transition is is over in terms of handing off the day to day responsibilities. But there's still uh, you know a phone call every week or two, just asking some questions and and getting some advice, and um, and we appreciate it because he's he's been a really good partner. And does. Was part of his reason for selling the business to go do something else, or was he looking to just pull back from operations and take some time for himself? What was his main motivation in selling the business? Uh, I think all of those. I think you know, as anybody who's been an operator of a business can tell you, there, there's a lot of parts of it that are not very glamorous, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's just a lot of hard work. Um, you know, doing some of the, the tedious tasks that need to be done to, to execute well. Uh, I think he was a little bit tired of that. I think he wanted to uh, diversify his net worth. He had, you know, built a nice business. 
you know, uh, 99.5% of his net worth was tied up in that business. And so he was able to get a nice check in our uh, transaction, yet he still owns a portion of it so that if we're successful in growing it as we hope, you know, he'll, uh, you know, get another bite of the apple if and when we ever sell it. Um, and so that was of interest to him. Um, and then I think also, you know, he, he, he wanted to do some, some different entrepreneurial activities. Um, and I don't know exactly what he's focused on right now, but he'd mentioned anything from real estate to all sorts. He's a smart guy with a lot of different interests. So I'm sure he's, he's working through that now to figure out, uh, exactly what he wants to do. Most of our clients mention real estate when they uh, when they think about diversification. There's something about the online world and real estate that is kind of feels polar opposite. One of my friends builds a lot of affiliate based websites, and I was at a wedding with him. You know, we were sitting next to each other, and we were talking about uh, business back and forth. And he said, "I take." I take my fake money when he sells websites and puts it into real assets. <laughs> right. So I thought that was a, a funny way to, to think about it. Um, obviously, the companies you're acquiring that are, are real brands and have, have presence, I wouldn't put in the class of fake money. But um, yeah, that's a bit of a different uh, thing. But the concept is very interesting to me. No, it is interesting, and and hopefully, yeah, we're generating real cash that's going in the bank. I, I haven't, nobody's told me yet if it's fake cash, so <laughs> that'd be a problem. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so you mentioned um, bite of the apple, and this is something that a lot of private equity groups talk about as a a pitch, basically, to keep the founder engaged and and retaining equity moving forward for those reasons you mentioned before, but also to reduce risk. So. When you think about a company like like Barton, is the the main goal to grow and sell, or is it more of a longer term view and see what the best options are at that time? Uh, the good thing is, I mean, our structure is we're not a, a traditional fund structure that's got a finite life uh, to it, where you've got to sell a business after a certain period of time to to return capital back to. To shareholders. Uh, that being said, uh, you know we do. We're looking to optimize the the investment for uh, for our shareholders that have put put money into into this transaction. Uh, you know these businesses are are very interesting in that you can grow them. Uh, there's a good market to sell them uh, into as they get bigger, uh, because this tends to be the part of uh, consumer land that's that is growing fast. Um, and so we see a number of, uh, of folks being uh, active in acquiring them. The other part of these businesses that are really nice is they generate, you know, a lot of good free cash flow uh, if you're, you know, operating them efficiently. And and good free cash flow can can lead to a lot of dividends uh, and distributions to shareholders. So that's another way to get money back to the shareholders. So, um, you know, I would I, I wouldn't be surprised if if we ultimately. Uh, sold Barton at some point, uh, but right now we're you know solely focused on on growing it and continuing to be you know efficient in in generating cash flow and and we'll see what happens uh, you know over time. I like it. And how do you think about risk? So a lot of the companies that we we come across, you mentioned Amazon before. It's it's quite the behemoth of sales and marketing for your business or for a small brand and can create 
a, a pretty sizable business in a short period of time. So how do you view a business that, say, is majority of their revenue generated through one source like Amazon? Uh, it's a big risk. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. Um, but it's one that we think that can be managed. Uh, we do think uh, having some diversification is is important. Uh, you know, a lot of these businesses that may be 100% Amazon or, you know, well over 80% Amazon, we do like to try to uh, diversify their sales channels uh, to a degree, you know, selling, depending on the the type of product. Some of them sell very well on their own website. Barton would be a good example of that. And so to the extent that we can move uh, more revenue to the website, either through, you know, affiliate marketing, you know, you know better use of social media, et cetera, uh, that can be a great thing and that can help de-risk our reliance on Amazon. Um, and we, we definitely look to do that. That being said, you know, Amazon... I forget the last stat, but I think they're roughly 50% of e-commerce right now. And so yeah. you know, it's hard to get, you know, uh, completely away from them. And and frankly, from a, we also think about it from, you know, what does the customer want? You know, where does the customer want to, you know, uh, buy this product? Um, you know, do they want to see it on Instagram and just, you know, click and and buy it? Uh, do they want to, they're on Amazon anyway, and they want to, you know, buy it there. And so, you know, we're, we're trying to make sure that we're giving a good customer experience such that they want to keep buying them and we make it easy um, uh, for them to do that. I love that approach. That's the first time I've heard someone on the, the buy side talk about um, customer experience. That's That's really important, right? That's what it all boils down to is who's actually buying the products. And I've had, I've had a lot of interesting conversations recently with people that are really negative on retail through their own experience, mind you, <laughs> um, either through losing money or barely breaking even on retail channels. But e-commerce worldwide is only about 20% of sales across the board. So there's still a lot of volume that's bought in store. And like you said, go where the customers are. So on top of direct-to-consumer and obviously Amazon, if that's where the base is, how do you guys look at at other channels, specifically retail and wholesale distribution? You know, I think for most of these young brands, it's important to build up your presence uh, online, you know, either direct-to-consumer or through Amazon, and, and to do it in a very profitable way such that, you know, you can uh, survive and thrive uh, without, you know, big box retailers or, or whatever channel of retailer that you need to go through on the brick and mortar side. I think a lot of what, you know, gets companies in trouble, especially when they're small and young, is is the allure of the Walmart uh, uh, sale um, or the allure of you know CVS coming in and 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 you can find yourself with a, a large customer concentration. You can find yourself, you know, bidding it down to a margin level that you think's acceptable, but then you get nickel and dimed and it gets you know really low. Um, we just like to do whatever we can to you know de-risk that by having strength in your uh, online areas, you know, your e-commerce areas, you know, D to C, DTC or, uh, or Amazon. Uh, that way it's just a different conversation, you know, when you're talking to the brick and mortar retailers and it's not, um, 
as one-sided in terms of I'll put you in, you know, 500 target stores and now your, your whole existence is beholden to, to maintaining that target order and hoping in three months that they re-up and, and order more. Um, the other part of it is I think obviously you lose, you know, the data um, when you're going through brick and mortar. And I think for a young consumer brand, um, you know, one of the keys is to be really good at, at your targeted marketing so that your return on ad spends really good. Uh, and it's just harder to do that. Um, when you don't own the end customer through. So, so we think that, you know, it, it, it's a great place to go eventually brick and mortar is in wholesale, traditional wholesale distribution. Um, but it's not where we tend to want to focus on the front end. And we would like to make sure we're sort of critical mass before we, you know, spend too many resources on, on those channels. That's a general idea. Yeah. You know, there's there's certain product sets that actually do do really well in retail, and you know, we would entertain going there first. But I would say vast majority of what we you know look at and, and work on, you know, we're uh, biased towards staying uh, in e-commerce as, as as long as it makes sense. I like it, Brian, and um, awesome. So the last question I have is around multiples. So obviously, we won't talk about the specific multiple in in a, any specific deal, but part of the attraction to the e-commerce space surely is the the multiples. So, what multiples are you typically seeing, and how does that differ from the middle market type multiples you are dealing with at Prudential? Yeah, I think multiples are, are a funny thing. You know, they're like opinions. Everybody's got one. Um, you know, and and I I definitely I worry about you know the country club effect of you know talking to someone and you know him or her telling you I sold my business for fifteen times EBITDA and then everybody thinks their company's worth fifteen times EBITDA because most are not. <laughs> so you know multiples range you know very widely. I would say you know we see anything from. Yeah, and we value things based on uh, a multiple of EBITDA. We're not big fans of multiple of revenue. Um, you know, we like cash flow. Cash flow is what pays your bills, so that's a, a good thing. We tend to th- you see anything from I would say you know four times EBITDA up to ten times. And really, what I would say makes the difference as to whether you're four times or ten times is. One is size. You know, as you get bigger, you know, you're going to go get a higher multiple. Um, and then the other part is is a lot of these, you know, qualitative factors. You know, if you are 100% on Amazon, if you have a hodgepodge of products that don't really have a brand identity um, and you're growing at a, you know, uh, mediocre rate, you know, you're probably, and you have mediocre margins, you know, you're, you're going to be at the lower end of that, uh, that realm. Now, if you are growing extremely rapidly, you've got a very attractive brand that has a defensible niche, uh, or defensible position within a attractive, you know, niche of the market, um, and you're selling on either multiple channels or, you know, your channels are, are heavy D to, D to C and less reliance on Amazon. Um, and you've got a lot of, uh, the other part of it's, you know, future growth. Uh, you know, do you have more product line extensions that are very natural product line extensions that are easy to do? Uh, and, you know, in terms of 
you know, should be very easily uh, accepted by your existing customer base, you know, that's going to push your multiple up higher to those higher, you know, levels uh, that we see. And so um, that's, you know, how many, go ahead. Sorry, how how many deals do you look at that are say marketed at 10 times EBITDA that are actually worth, worth that, do you think? Uh, 2%. <laughs> I don't know. Well, <laughs> yeah, I don't, not many. Um, I, we, and we don't tend to, uh, play, you know, at that upper end of the, the multiple range. Um, you know, part of what we're trying to do is find situations where we're going to bring some value add. Uh, and so, you know, value add typically means that there's, you know, a few of those, uh, attributes that aren't fully, you know, baked at that point, and they need some help to to get there. That being said, you know, I have yet to run into a transaction where there wasn't some level of competition, whether the competition was another buyer or whether there's, you know, just the the competition is, you know, the seller not having to do anything because, you know, he or she's making, you know, a lot of money. Um, so you've got to pay, you know, a market multiple for, for transactions. Um, but we do, you know, time to, from time to time, run into people that have uh, inflated expectations, and so you know, we tend to, uh, you know, just you know, continue to build a relationship and, and see if something will morph over time. But but you know, unfortunately, we have to be disciplined in what we do to make sure that we can stay in business as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the appeal of of what you're doing of the private equity space. Um, I use that term pretty loosely. It seems very attractive. You you get capital, you go deploy the capital, you get these huge returns and everything's happy days. Maybe you sell the business down the line for a a much higher multiple. Why do you do what you do? Um, I love to build small businesses. I mean, that's really (laughs) what I, you know, in terms of waking up and being excited about doing something, uh, that's what gets me fired up. I like to... uh, I like the people side of, of these you know, businesses and, and putting the pieces together that are needed to, to help them get to the next level. Uh, and um, I unfortunately am not creative enough to come up with these great products. And so I, I need other people to, to do that. And then I try to uh, apply, you know, where, where some of our talents are uh, to, to help, you know, the overall situation grow. And that's what uh, I really find, find fun. That's awesome. That's a pretty cool, cool thing to find fun. It's highly profitable too. Um, you, you don't have to answer this, but I'm, I'm curious. As the partners of the business, are you really compensated more on an exit? Um, I've talked to some, some groups that that's how they, their compensation really operates. Um, or are you paid along the way? Um, how does if you can talk about that as far as um, partner compensation and how that works? Um, not specifically in your case, but um, as a concept, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think um, I think it comes back to alignment of interests, and you need to have you know everybody in the boat rowing it the same direction. Uh, you know, we you know put some of our own money into these transactions, and and uh, you know we get the vast majority of the compensation that we're going to make is based on a successful exit. Uh, so you know we all need to. Uh, get the company heading the right way and growing and get it to position to where it's, you know, attractive to where it can be, 
either acquired or can be attractive where it's, you know, kicking off a lot of distributions and, and dividends. Uh, you know, the, the interim period, you know, we get a, a, a small management fee uh, that's paid to us, but that's, you know, barely keeps the lights on, <laughs> to be honest with you. It's, <laughs> it's, it's really all about the upside um, that we're in it for. And, uh, and I think that's where the, the fun is. And that's, you know, that's why we think we're, we're really well aligned in terms of interest with, uh, with everybody. I like it. Well, this has been a super interesting conversation. Hopefully, the listeners have found it as exciting and enjoyable as I have. I could talk to you all day, but we are coming up to uh, the end of our time here. So, Brian, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, no, thank you very much, too. I have enjoyed the conversation. Um, easiest way is probably email. And so it's uh, Brian, and I spell it funny, B-R-I-E-N at altacrestcapital.com. Uh, and then you can also find us on our website at altacrestcapital.com. And that's A-L-T-A-C-R-E-S-T-C-A-P-I-T-A-L. Excellent. Awesome. Well, yeah, I highly recommend people go to your website and check that out and definitely reach out to you um, if they've want to learn more or if they've got something of interest to to talk about for sure and maybe just to wrap up could you you've talked a little bit about the the criteria that you have for investing is there anything else that you'd like to um, highlight here as as a as a potential opportunity if someone is either with their own company or they're talking to a friend what type of businesses are you guys looking for at AltaCrest? Yeah, we love consumer product companies and really a wide variety of sizes. Uh, you know, we can do transactions that are, you know, quite a bit uh, bigger than uh, beyond $10 million. I mean, that's our legacy at Prudential. We did a lot of transactions for companies bigger than that. Uh, but, um, you know, we love to, to learn and we love to, to, to look at companies. We love to talk to, to entrepreneurs and operators. Uh, I would just, you know, recommend people to, to reach out to us and, even if it's not a fit for us or you're in a different uh, part of your uh, company life cycle and you're not ready to do anything, we love to just begin a conversation. And if it's not a fit for us, you know, we, we tend to know, you know, a, a number of folks in the industry and, and we're happy to make introductions because that usually turns back around and helps you out in other ways down the line. So, Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Brian, for for coming on Truth About Exits. This has been a great conversation and I'd love to have you back on after you guys have done some more transactions and we can talk talk more about it. Maybe a transaction we work on together even. (laughs) That'd be great. That would be great. We'd look forward to it. Awesome. All right. Thanks, mate. We'll talk again soon. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Truth About Exits. Now, whenever you're ready, here are three ways I can help you. If your company is doing between 10 to 50 million plus in revenue and you want help to plan your perfect exit to achieve the highest value and best deal terms possible, or if you'd like advice on acquiring other companies to continue to grow your company, we can help. Go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. There you'll see a simple form to tell us a little bit more about you, your company, and your goals, and my team and I will take it from there. So go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. 
The second way I can help is become a guest on our show. If you've had a successful exit, you want to share your story, or if you're actively acquiring other businesses and want to share your criteria with our audience, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash guest. Let's connect and I'd love to talk to you. The third way I can help you is one of my favorite things in the entire world is sharing the truth about exit stories with other entrepreneurs by speaking at events all over the world. So far, I've had the privilege of speaking at events in the US, Canada, UK, Spain, Germany, Ukraine, Czech Republic, over in Asia, China, Hong Kong, Thailand, and even Australia. If you'd like me to speak at your next event, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash speaker and tell me a little bit more about your event and we'll go from there. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next episode.